Welcome back. Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV FM and AM. Lee Cattell in the chair on this Friday morning. Thanks for joining us here until 11 o'clock today. Coming up in this hour, Sasha Goldstein of Seven Days has been digging into the background of Justin Eaton, the man who was accused of shooting three young Palestinian men in Burlington a few weekends ago. And uh, what is his background? Sasha Goldstein has been looking into that, and we'll find out more about that coming up in about 15 minutes. And in the second half hour... Aaron O'Malley is going to join us from GoFundMe. They found out that Vermont tops GoFundMe's list of most generous states in 2023. So we'll talk all about uh, that with Aaron O'Malley coming up at the bottom of the hour. Right now, joining me on the line is Bob Ney with our national correspondent. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, Lee. Well, kudos to Vermont for the GoFundMe. That's wonderful. Yeah, there's a a lot of generous folks here in Vermont. And mm-hmm. and there's a lot of uh, and I'm looking at the list of GoFundMe efforts in the state that have generated a lot of money recently, and the mm-hmm. evidence is all there. Vermonters are are right. generous people. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, uh, internationally, Israel and Hamas, there's not a lot of generosity among these two groups, Bob. And Israel is uh, after the ceasefire pounding the length of the Gaza Strip and uh, and level and bringing devastation to that area and it it's really hard for me to put into words what this effort is actually doing to buildings and all of the infrastructure in that part of the world well i think in the north part of gaza if i read correctly on a couple of the reports there was like 28% of the infrastructure was gone. And, of course, there's long-term effects of water, um, the tunnels that Hamas uh, dug, what, how do they have an effect, they're bombed, you know, all those types of things that down the road are going to be, you know, out there. Um, but now uh, Israel went into a southern city where the people, of course, were told from, uh, you know, to go from the north to the south. So, the United Nations Secretary General has invoked what's called Article 99 to formally push for a ceasefire, uh, you know, to happen. And he is saying there's a humanitarian catastrophic disaster in the in the making. Um, now, Article 99 is uh, is a provision in the United States uh, or in the United Nations Charter. And it states that the Secretary General, which is the top, you know, head of the UN, may bring this attention to the Security Council. And it's not invoked, you know, a lot. Uh, so this isn't something that's done all the time. And it's in reaction to now, you know, the push into the South. Of course, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister Lee, said that after the ceasefires existed and then ended, that he would uh, you know, continue to um, go in with both bombs and the ground troops to round out Hamas. Meanwhile, of course, there's controversy all over the world. And I've been watching a, a ton of clips and I've talked to some of my Israeli friends. And within Israel, there there is a lot of very intense debate on uh, Israelis debating 
uh, Netanyahu's policies and some Israelis supporting the policies. Well, I'm not surprised to hear that, Bob. Netanyahu only had about, uh, what, 30 to 35 percent support from the country in the last election, but was able to uh, garner up a coalition to uh, to become the prime minister. So there's a lot of people that innately don't like him, and this war may only deepen the, the folks that oppose him. Uh, if If the U.N. decides to move ahead with Article 99, so what? What will that do to Israel, or what can they do to compel Israel to uh, ceasefire? Well, it will put a lot of pressure on Israel. Now, the Security Council people can veto that. China, Russia, America. So, you know, most likely we would veto that, which would put, of course, President Biden in the worst political position here, in a sense, or a touchy, I should say, political you know position. Netanyahu, of course, has been, as you indicated, he's been in and out as prime minister. He was out and he was in by a vote. And, you know, now he his bribery trial is proceeding again in Israel. There's also I'm going to predict this. The hostages that are remaining, their families and friends are going to probably go to the streets again, which they did. Uh, trying to force Netanyahu into ceasefires, which happened. And, of course, 100, well, around 90 hostages were released. So there's still more. So that's probably going to you know, be occurring. Netanyahu himself, by the way, I have met him several times, but I have been in a private meeting with him in Israel. And let me just say this, uh, and that, that meeting erupted between he and Congressman Paul Kanjorski at the time from Pennsylvania. And that meeting was not for the... Um, Faint of heart, put it that way. Uh, you know, Harsh he's, words he's were exchanged. Nature. Oh yes, I, I love your station, so I'm not going to repeat it because I want you. you to stay on air. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, it it continues to rage, and uh, of course, Bernie Sanders this week uh, said he would not vote for the package that would send uh, send a what 110 billion dollars to uh, Israel, and and Bernie shot it down. Or he voted against it, I should say, and that bill was defeated. Well, yes. Well, Bernie Sanders is a huge factor. I can't stress how much of a factor Bernie Sanders is in this because Bernie Sanders started out with the statement that he said, I'm Jewish. And that gives, you know, Bernie Sanders a lot of power in this. Not only is he powerful in the Senate, but also... You know, if somebody else did this in the Senate, they could be accused of being anti-Semitic. You can't accuse Bernie Sanders of that. So this is kind of a a very powerful move. Now, he's not saying he's not going to support Israel, but he wants certain conditions. So no question that that the Senate, they're going to have to communicate with Bernie Sanders on this issue. Talk with Bob Ney, our national correspondent here on WDEV FM and AM. Now, uh, President Joe Biden has indicated that he definitely wants this big package to be passed, and uh, that includes for Ukraine, and he's starting to imply that American troops could be imposed in per- certain war zones around the country. Well, And that's going to be tough for uh, President Biden because the one thing – uh, about international policy with President Trump is we didn't get into a war. And there is such fear that we're going to get into something with Iran or <clears throat> some other point around the world. So I think that, you know, in, including Ukraine, and as up to this point, obviously, we provided money support. 
Uh, we we didn't even as this began. When I say we, by the way, on Ukraine, Lee, I I also mean our united, um, you know, allies in okay. this NATO allies. But uh, we didn't even say that we would impose, uh, you know, stopping flyovers, which would have really helped Ukraine. We would have been in the air, and uh, no fly zones would have been brought forth. So we didn't do that. So this is kind of a unusual step now. On top of everything, Ukraine has a lot different, uh, a lot different situation, and now Israel has come to the forefront in the Congress of money. In Ukraine, uh, there's a battle there ahead for the for the funding for a wide variety of reasons. Mm. Uh, all right, let's get domestic here for a moment. I see Hunter Biden is facing some additional charges related to uh, not paying taxes. Excuse me. Gesundheit. Oh, excuse me. I, mean, I coughed. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, yes, and this story has a lot of legs, Lee, because of the fact that the plea deal, which I think happened around uh, August, was completely uh, a legal farce in the sense that they had a plea deal. It was in August. That would have taken care of it in 2023. And, you know, the election, of course, is in 2024 of his father. And they went into court and that thing blew up like a nuclear bomb. And now they didn't do a secondary attempt, obviously, to plea deal. And now they have charges. Now, Hunter Biden is trying to get, get some disclosure information about emails and Trump and is there political. But Justice Department is under the Biden administration now who have brought the charges. So that's really not going to be something valid that a judge would say, oh, okay, we'll investigate Trump, you know, for this. Uh, This is a real problem because, again, they should have done the plea deal. And uh, I I think, frankly, looking back on it, they should have probably offered in the plea deal, you know, 30 or 60 days or something, or an ankle bracelet or home confinement, anything to have sweetened the plea deal. Now he is uh, going to face federal charges. This is, Lee, this is going to be a tough one, and it's going to not get pretty. It's going to get uglier. All right, Bob. Bob Nay chatting with us here on WDEV. Why are people calling for the resignation of the president of the University of Pennsylvania? This was a hearing that um, it, it baffled me that the the three presidents that came there, it, it sort of baffled me that they didn't make a, you know, a clearer distinction of what they were saying. Now, they did afterwards. They made a statement. But basically, right now, and it might happen to, you know, to Harvard and, uh, and you know, it, it might. I don't know. But right now, the University of Pennsylvania's president, Liz McGill, is under real severe criticism, and there's calls for her resignation. It's because they asked her during the hearing, and again, along with Harvard and MIT, they asked them about phrases used, for example, the genocide of the Jews, and none of the three, including her, did not explicitly say that calling for genocide of Jews would necessarily violate the university's code of conduct on bullying or harassment. Instead, they explained it would depend on the circumstances and conduct. Now. I, I read the testimony. I watched the clips. I understand they were balancing between 
free speech and what the university could do to somebody to say you can't say that or what the university would do to protect uh, Jewish students who felt threatened. But it didn't come out that way. Now, afterwards, they did make a statement that I think clarified it a lot better. But for what she said uh, in the hearing, she's under the gun. I would be surprised if she survives this. And a heavy hitter says he's going to rescind a $100 million contribution if she doesn't resign. That's a lot of pressure. Oh, yeah. Everybody's doing this. Uh, um, in, in Ohio, we have uh, Les Wexner. Uh, he's a billionaire, and he has withdrawn some support uh, for a call at one of the colleges. I can't remember which one, but he did where he has given money. He's a high-profile figure. Ross Stevens has threatened to pull back a $100 million donation, and that would be to Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, you're you're starting to see this all over the place with people who have donated. And uh, it will be interesting to see how the universities react to this. Bob, it seems like it's easy to say the wrong thing when you're talking about the Israel-Hamas war. Well, it is, and that's why I pointed out about Bernie Sanders, because, you know, his statement up front, I think, um, clarifies that there is no way that he can be anti-Semitic. But general statements, it, it, you know, it started out, of course, people that supported Hamas are going to get a lot of criticism. But then some people said, well, if you support Palestinians, if you say, I support Palestinians and freedom for Palestinians, that is anti-Semitic in itself. And there were even people who were in Congress were talking about passing a law that if you supported Palestinians, it was it was going to be anti-Zionist, they were saying. So all of a sudden, you know, everybody's kind of defining. Now, I think if you support support Hamas, it's pretty clear. That's like saying you support Al-Qaeda. But supporting the Palestinians, you know, for a lot of people does not mean that they are, uh, in their minds, anti-Semitic. They are supporting Palestinians. So, yes, Lee, this is getting argued Hmm. all over the place. Honestly, uh, more here, it seems, at times than over in Israel. And it looks like people are sliding around to try and find some secular ground to stand on in this battle. Well, I've heard all of it so far. I've heard the religious side of this. I've heard comments, you know, when I've been doing radio, uh, some uh, ministers have come on, and then they debate within themselves. And uh, there's some fascinating clips of some of Orthodox Jewish people in New York who are in the streets of New York. I've seen the clips myself, and they have banners saying, free the Palestinians. They have banners mm. they're wearing. And they are telling other Jewish people that they really aren't. And then the one man said, you're not a Jew. You're you're against God because of what you're doing. And this was an Orthodox Jewish person telling another Jewish person because he was supporting Israel that he was not Jewish. I mean, so I've. I've kind of, I've been watching the clips. I've seen it all. A lot of people struggle to understand, but Bob, thanks for giving us some time this morning to help shed some light on it. Very much appreciate your time. Thank you, Lee. Welcome back. It's Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV, FM and AM. Sasha Goldstein joins me, a reporter for seven days. 
trying to get a little background on the man accused of shooting three Palestinian men in Burlington a few weekends ago. Sasha, good morning. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we've learned a lot about the Palestinian men who were shot and uh, and their gathering, but it's been really quiet in terms of what we might know about Justin Eaton. So uh, Seven Days has been working on it. You've been working on it. And what uh, what sort of information have you uncovered? Yeah, he um, Jason Eaton, he, he, from what we can tell, is he, he, he grew up in Vermont, but um, spent many years in Syracuse and came back to Burlington really only over the summer, according according to police. Did he grow up um, in Burlington? He grew up in Woodstock, actually. Wood- okay. Um, and so so we've kind of did a deep dive into. Uh, you know, trying to find people who knew him, looking at his kind of extensive profile he kept on LinkedIn. He had a personal website. Um, but the, but, but the conclusion we came to is that he's kind of this strange person who seemed complicated with this sort of disjointed, um, these disjointed views that weren't really coherent in any particular way, right? Obviously, the prosecutors are investigating this as a hate crime. Um, but right now, what he stands charged with um, are, are, are three counts of second degree attempted murder. So that that hate crime is kind of an enhancement on top of those. And we haven't heard anything since the original charge um, that that there's any update on on how that hate charge, um, crime, you know, investigation is going. So, yeah, we kind of thought it's our duty to, to dig into it and see if there was anything um, that stuck out. You know, a lot of times in these sort of cases, Someone has, you know, maybe a manifesto or something online where they express certain views that might indicate racism or hate against a certain group. And and from what we could find, we just we just didn't really find that. So that brings into question the circumstances surrounding the shooting where apparently Eaton came out of his porch point blank and, and saw these men and shot them. I don't have. A, a visual of where they were or if he saw these people coming up from up the street from five minutes away and had time to prepare or if it was something spontaneous looking out his window as they strolled by. So help me narrow down some of the details about that confrontation. Yeah, yeah. So so North Prospect Street is not um, a, a very pedestrian heavy street. You know, it's, it's right near uh, the UVM campus, but um, there are some businesses there. It's it's kind of a um, it's not as densely packed as some of the the streets you might see in the Burlington's old North End. And um, my, our understanding, and and a lot of this is based on the police records, the, the affidavit that came out after he was charged. And our understanding is these three young men were staying just down the street with some relatives, and they've been there since Wednesday evening, you know, for Thanksgiving. And our understanding is they were kind of they they'd taken some walks around the neighborhood previously. So this shooting happened, as you mentioned, right in front of Jason Eaton's uh, apartment. And as they described it to police, he walked towards them. He didn't say a word and he opened fire. And it was just this this thing. So we we, we really don't know. Was he waiting for them? Had he previously seen them walk by? Um, days prior, right? So that they came Wednesday and the shooting happened on, on Saturday. So we don't know if they, on previous walks, if he'd seen them and thought, I'm going to get them one of these times. You know, we just don't know 
okay. that information. So, so I, that's <laughs> that is some of the the missing pieces we're we're hoping to find out more about. Talk with Sasha Goldstein from Seven Days. If you'd like to join or ask, 802-244-1777. I've seen some other reports, Sasha, about past reports of domestic violence regarding a relationship in New York, and also a report that he had lost his job a few weeks prior to the shooting of the job that he had in Chittenden County. Yeah, these are both both true things. We've actually turned up in our reporting um, two instances where former romantic partners were alarmed enough by his behavior that they contacted police over in Syracuse, New York. The first time was a woman um, who had recently broken up with um, Jason Eaton. This was in 2013, and she called police, and he had left a shotgun at her house um, that he owned, and she did not want to have any contact with him. She wanted to hand over the gun to police to let them deal with it. Um, and in the course of that discussion with, or with that, that conversation with uh, officials, she told them that there had been past domestic violence in that relationship and there were concerns about his mental health as well. So there weren't specifics in that police report about the extent of the domestic violence, um, the extent of the mental illness. Um, but we did hear in reporting um, from other sources, other people who knew um, Jason, they also mentioned uh, mental health concerns. Um, you know, I had this second, there was a second uh, woman who reported him to police uh, in 2019 and, and they had broken, they had broken up as well, hmm. but he continued to contact her. She had told him to stop and he hadn't seemed to get the, the picture to the point where she uh, actually contacted police and then ultimately applied for a restraining order against him. And that was actually in place for three years. So that sort of speaks to the extent of her concerns about how that relationship ended. So, you know, those were some, some, some interesting um, background on him again, to the, the mental health concerns people brought up. We, we don't know um, the exact extent of that, you know, some people alluded to depression. Um, so, so yeah, there are certainly, um, I don't want to say warning signs, but things that pointed sort of to troubled uh, a personal life for this guy. Right. And uh, but on his social media, no mention of Jews or Muslims in any of his accounts. Right. Well, that that was what was interesting is we actually so his 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 tweets are protected, which means you can only see them if you follow him. And we were able to get um, access to a, a few of his tweets. And in those tweets, we saw um, some uh, indication that he actually supported the, the Palestinian cause, which I think was interesting given um, the, the potential for this this hate crime charge. And um, what so, those those showed is he sort of um, said, of course, if, if someone invaded co your country, wouldn't you fight back? Um, you know, and he said something about uh, Palestinians uh, being owed a state. Uh, so these were certainly... Uh, interesting. This hmm. is kind of the the, the only um, indication we got at all about um, his interest or um, paying attention to the the conflict there. These these tweets that we saw they came out, you know, after October seventh when, when Hamas launched its its terrorist attack against okay. Israel. So so he was clearly this was on his mind to to some extent. Sasha Goldstein from Seven Days, where you can find out more about this story. I very much appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. 
Thanks, Lee. Really appreciate it. Take care. Welcome back. WDEV's Vermont Viewpoint. Lee Cattell in today. Brad Ferland will host on Monday here on WDEV. And if you miss it live, you can catch the podcast at WDEVradio.com, the Vermont Viewpoint podcast. If you'd like to join me on the phones, it's 802-244-1777 and toll-free 877-291-8255. Joining me on the line right now is Margaret Richardson with GoFundMe. And uh, Margaret, good morning. Welcome to the WDEV Airwaves. Good morning, Lee. Thank you for having me. GoFundMe is what? GoFundMe is the leading crowdfunding platform, the place where the anyone anywhere can uh, raise money for what they need and what they want to support in the world. We have um, the great honor of celebrating the people of Vermont this year for being the most generous state on our platform. And so we're delighted to be with you to share that news and to celebrate the incredible generosity of the people of Vermont. Well, I definitely celebrate uh, Vermonters' generosity. We are a giving people here in large part, and GoFundMe is a great centralized spot to take advantage of all that people have to give. Absolutely. This year, when we've just launched our Year in Help report, more than 30 million people gave or received help through our platform. We had 39 million donations showing the outpouring of support for such things as natural disaster relief, supporting small businesses. In Vermont specifically, we saw almost 100,000 100, fundraisers for small businesses, and we're incredibly proud to be able to facilitate that kind of generosity among people. Now, this is uh, fascinating how some of these things sort of catch fire. Uh, in uh, the June farm, got some help uh, with more than $75,000 raised. Uh, Nick Ringette uh, was killed in a uh, car crash in uh, July, and uh, for his wife, Ashley, they raised more than $141,000. A single mom lost yeah. everything in a house fire, and that generated $150,000. And and this uh, latest, uh, the young man named Hisham, who uh, was shot in uh, Burlington. Now, that, that particular fundraising campaign took a life of its own because that story broke nationally, and I suspect that contributions came in from around the world in that effort. That's right. And we saw the outpouring of support. Over 18,000 donors came together to raise almost a million and a half dollars for uh, Hisham and his family. As And that number is continuing to go up. This is um, shows the spirit of people coming together in a tragedy and the ways in which we continue to show up for the common humanity of everyone on the platform. We're incredibly proud to be able to facilitate this. And I know that that uh, event rocked the community across the world, but really, of course, in Vermont as well. And the ability of people to heal by participating in the support for Hisham and his family is a real testament to the incredible generosity of the community. So I'm doing a little bit of quick math here uh, for you. And it says 18,000 contributions and to raise about $1.4 million, we're talking about $75 a contribution on average among those 18,000 people. 
That's right. It's a lot of people, you know, it's, it's of course a wide range of amounts, but every dollar helps. And the ways in which people communicate not only their financial support, but their words of encouragement and solidarity. And uh, that is a part of what we often hear from people about the platform is just being able to be a part of the solution when something tragic happens or when something that they don't uh, agree with in the world, you know, violence or or tragedy or, you know, devastation of any kind. People want to be a part of the solution. It's a deeply human response. And we're incredibly proud of the ways in which GoFundMe is able to facilitate that coming together of humanity. We're talking with Margaret Richardson. She's with GoFundMe, uh, the fundraising online uh, location at GoFundMe.com, right? Yes, exactly right. And uh, anybody, what does it take? Do you need an organization to get something started? Or what does it take to to get an idea put uh, forward on GoFundMe? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked. Anyone who sees something that they would like to raise money for, whether it's for themselves, for another, for an organization, you can start a a fundraiser. It's very straightforward on on GoFundMe.com. You tell the story of what you're fundraising for. You add a picture or a short video, and then you send it out to your network. The thing we've seen about successful fundraisers is that they are able to both share it, but also to ask the people who they are sharing with uh, the, the fundraising cause to share it even more broadly. Often, media like yourself will raise the awareness by sharing the fact of a fundraiser, but it is a, an incredibly connected community. And the po- most powerful way in which people are able to raise funds is by asking other people in their network and asking those people to continue to share the need and to share the um, the opportunity through their any of the social media, any you know, email, text, and and we also see that people who are successful fundraisers, this is um, say thank you. They share updates of how it's going, and that is, uh, you know, again a, a very deeply human um, and and powerful way in which we tell stories. And we want we all want to see the impact of what we do in the world. And I think that GoFundMe does an incredible job of enabling anyone anywhere to raise money for what they're uh, passionate about. We're talking with Margaret Richardson with GoFundMe, 802-244-1777. Margaret, how about an example of the greatest successes that GoFundMe has had? Sure. Well, I think one of the things that we're incredibly proud of is the ways in which the whole world came together to support the communities in Maui following the wildfires. We saw more than $106 million raised for the um, horrific fires, and, and that's in natural disasters generally. One of the things that we are very proud of is how fast and easy it is to be able to start a fundraiser. But one thing that's not necessarily obvious is that we are very careful on the back end. We have a world-class trust and safety team that is making sure that donations are protected. We have a giving guarantee that ensures if there is the rare case where something goes wrong, people's donations are protected. And we are constantly enabling people to bring their most generous selves together and to be able to drive that success for the platform. One of the, um, among the, you mentioned earlier the June farm that um, it was one of the crop, had crop loss 
during the historic floods in Vermont in August, we're incredibly proud of the over $75,000 that was raised for uh, that farm following that devastation. And what the feedback that we got was that the the, um, beneficiaries were saying that they don't know where they would be without the community and that there's no place that they would rather be Um, even with the flood. And so to remind people, even after the devastation, that their community has their back is the power of GoFundMe. Margaret Richardson is the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer with GoFundMe. A couple of quick questions. What happens if you over-raise your total? If you're looking for $100 and you get 1000 then what? Well, it's a good problem to have. Oftentimes people will um, continue to contribute to whatever the cause is if they uh, and if you raise more than that, you can use the money to um, as long as you update your donors on what you're using it for. You can use it for additional causes in the same category. You can share it with your community. We had one young man in Missouri who was raising money to pay off the lunch debt. A lot of communities where young people have to pay for school lunch, if you can't pay, they run up debt and then kids go hungry. He thought this was a terrible thing and didn't want kids in his community to go hungry. So he was raising money to pay off his entire school's lunch debt. It went viral. He did an amazing job. His name is Juwan Strickland. And he then paid off the lunch debt of other schools in his community. And so that's the type of thing we see our amazing uh, community of fundraisers doing to extend the generosity and extend the goodness that they are able to ignite in all of us when they raise money on behalf of something that they care about. When you uh, went into the commercial break, you were talking about your efforts on the back end to help prevent fraud and and cases like that. Are are there people out there who are trying to make a a living out of uh, phony fundraisers? I'm sure there's people in any setting who are trying to take advantage of uh, different, you know, different schemes. And, and we've done, I think, the very best uh, in class in terms of being able to protect the generosity of our community. And so fraudsters have learned if this is their business, they are better off going somewhere else. And so we have um, a great system. We are able to really ensure both our fundraisers and our donors uh, that we have their backs and that we protect our community. And again, in those very rare cases where something goes wrong, we fully cooperate with law enforcement and people learn quickly this is not the place to try and do anything nefarious. And if somebody wants to uh, get that GoFundMe campaign kick-started and blasting viral, what are some of the best things they can do? I guess one would be to touch people with the message and then, as you point out, get people to send that message to others. Exactly right. The, um, the best thing you can do is tell a clear and compelling story, share it with your community, and then continue to update people, send, remind people as you're approaching your goal. We see a lot of times there is a spike in generosity as people get closer to their goals. We all love that um, feeling of being part of that final push and then being able to always say thank you. I think that's a critical piece 
of our successful fundraisers, that they're keeping their community of donors updated. They're expressing their appreciation and they're sharing the individual impact. So um, I think and and the good news is we have lots of tips on GoFundMe.com to share and to help people if they need support in getting their fundraiser launched. And then, you know, reminders about how people can continue to get it out in the world and make it as successful as possible. Margaret, I appreciate your time. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you, Lee, and congratulations to the people of Vermont on their incredible generosity, the most generous state on GoFundMe for the second year in a row. Margaret Richardson, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer with GoFundMe here on the uh, Vermont Viewpoint Program here on WDEV. All right, quick transition now as uh, Kathleen Keenan is joining us from Lost Nation Theater. And Kathleen probably had her ear on the radio. Looking for a little fundraising, you can go fund me the next act at uh, Lost Nation Theater, Kathleen. <laughs> Sounds good, Lee. Sounds good. <laughs> you can do that at www.lostnationtheater.org. All right. Thanks well, for having us this morning. You bet. Now, there's a lot coming up at Lost Nation Theater. So, uh, first of all, your next performance is when? Oh, my goodness. Coming right up next Wednesday and Thursday, uh, December 13 and 14 at 7 o'clock. We are presenting a stage greeting of David Budbill's Two for Christmas. Okay, now David yeah. Budbell, he's he's that Hardwick guy, right? That's written a lot of great local stuff. <laughs> yes, Hardwick uh, Wolcott. He's a you know he's a Vermont transplant, uh, but uh, certainly uh, took on the case of the little guy and Vermonters. They're very famous for his um, poetry and his play Judavine. Yes, uh, David left us unfortunately um, late in 2016. Uh, but that's another reason why we're we're bringing back two for Christmas. We last did the show in 2012, but um, you know we're really um, wanting to help uh, keep David's legacy alive, and it's a fantastic show. So we hope folks will come down. Give me those dates one more time. You betcha. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday, December 13 and 14 now at seven o'clock. And uh, you, Lost Nation Theater, are you back at City Hall? We sure are, and we happy sure to be are. so. I'll bet. Happy, very, very happy to be so. Yes, the only downside is that like any other second, third story building in central Vermont, um, we don't have the elevator anymore. Uh, we're still waiting on word as to when it's going to be back. Uh, but for that reason, we are live streaming the show um, so that anybody who can't physically join us is able to experience um the production as well. Uh, we'll also have extra ushers available to help folks up the stairs. Um, and there are landing areas along the way where you can rest if getting up the stairs is an issue. Uh, but So we're doing the best we can, but that's definitely uh, a challenge. Talking with Kathleen Keenan, Lost Nation Theater, here on WDEV FM and AM. We've got a few minutes left, 802-244-1777, 877-291-8255. So you've got the uh, the two for Christmas show next Wednesday and Thursday. Anything else yep. on the calendar in 2023? Oh, my goodness, yes. We're, we're going right down to the wire, Lee. So uh, we're so excited to be, bring, be bringing back David Budville, um next week. And then the week after that, on Tuesday, December 19, uh, Willem Lang will be presenting his uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, A Ghost Story. And uh, Willem is coming on close to 50 years straight 
uh, performing the Christmas Carol. So we're so excited to help him do that and do it in the theater with, you know, the bells of whistles of lights and sound. Um, so that's very, very exciting. And then we just got awarded a grant from the Montpelier Alive with our partners Shida Projects, Inc. And we are going to be creating a New Year's Eve celebration in downtown Montpelier. Um, oh. more, details to, more details to come on that. But there'll be um, activities for families, kids, music, dance, etc., happening at various locations starting around noon or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it'll culminate in um, at Lost Nation Theater with a, product, a performance um, by Shada Dance and Drumming uh, and LNTE combined. Wow. So that is like a, yes. a citywide operation on New Year's Eve that Lost Nation Theater is going to be part of. Yeah, yeah, we are coordinating it with Shada. So it's a lot of work at the last minute, but we're glad to do it. And uh hope folks will come out for that as well as, um, you know, Two for Christmas and A Christmas Carol, just really trying to do what we can to be a light in the community. <laughs> well, it's an, it's an impressive team and a, a fun bunch there at Lost Nation Theater, and you're always looking for more talent when, they, uh, when they're around. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. More talent on stage, behind the stage, uh, volunteering to, uh, you know, to help um, welcome people to the theater or put posters up or, you know, there's all kinds of ways to get involved at LNT. You got any auditions on the horizon? Um, Maybe soon. Uh, yes, actually, I, I um, we started last summer with the Adams Family musical, a um a professional, again, a, we restarted, I should say, a professional theater training program. So in February, we'll be having auditions for uh, that program. Um, and uh, I will be announcing what that show is very soon. But Eric Love is back to direct. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, professional opportunity for ages 12 to 21 to be part of this um education program it's kind of like a boot training camp and then uh and then you're part of the professional show that will perform for three weeks all right well you got a lot of tease in this phone call here kathleen you're teasing (laughs) you're teasing next year's event which we don't know what it is yet and we're teasing the new year's eve event in montpelier and we got to wait for details on that so i guess we'll have to sit with our paws in the air until the next time we get a chance to chat with you (laughs) yes and all the information will be available um, once, as soon as we open two for Christmas, it'll all be available. Season tickets will be available um, starting December 13 for the 2024 season. And of course, um, you know, there you go. You just stole my last question. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Lee. Sorry. But it's all available online. www.lostnationtheater.org. Two for Christmas is Wednesday and Thursday. Give me those start times and how much are tickets? Okay, uh, we start at 7 o'clock, and tickets start at $10, um, so it's like 10 to $20. It's a two-act evening. It's such a fun show. Um, it's a, David was inspired to um, to put a modern version of uh, modern English of uh, the second Shepherd's play, which is a medieval um, play uh, that uses a lot of humor and sarcasm to tell the story of the nativity. So that's the first act, so it's back in 1479, and then we jump forward 500, 600 years and land in Judevine, the fictional Judevine, Vermont, and we tell the same story again. Where, um, and uh, the story is essentially a thief steals a lamb, which turns into the baby Jesus, and that's 
um, Jean's tale of the nativity story. Uh, but when we go back, when we move forward in time to Judavine, the um, the the lamb becomes a chainsaw, and the shepherds become pulp cutters, and the angel is a waitress. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to stop in, get some tickets, and see it to figure out what's really going on. I know, right? But it's great fun. It's a really, it's kind of a different way of celebrating the holidays. Uh, but, you know, it's it really is about opening up your heart and all the lessons that any, all of our religions and um, spiritual uh, holidays are, are trying to teach us at this time of year. <laughs> Kathleen, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Appreciate it. LostNationTheater.org. And we'll talk again soon. Kathleen Keenan with Lost okay. Nation Theater here on WDEV. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank Sasha Goldstein from Seven Days, Albert Karen of the Waterbury Service Center, and uh, Kathy over at the Stowe Street Emporium for joining me today on Vermont Viewpoint. Common Sense Radio is next. <laughs> 